the Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. Not to tell you, uh, last week my guest was on and we had a great time. Larry Thomas was on and we were talking about his career and his uh, bail bondsman days and all this cool stuff. And we talked about the soup Nazi, but we never really talked about when he got started, when he actually acted on it. He got, we got to the point where he booked it. And I want to talk to him about that because, you know, I'm a big Seinfeld fan and the other career that ha- followed and his, uh, he goes to a lot of shows and his uh, book signing, which happens to be this Thursday in Burbank at the Barnes & Noble, I believe. And he actually wrote a book with uh, soup. I don't there's eight recipes, but there's still soup. It's a bunch yeah. of recipes. And my guest is Larry uh, Thomas. How you doing, Larry? Hey, good. How are you? Good. It's funny. I, ju- I just got your uh, the Facebook. We just became friends on Facebook because I always, when I post, I post, you know, I want to post tag the person. But I just got your invite. So before we start about, you know, everything else, tell me about the cookbook real quick and, and how you decided to write it and how are you doing? Are you going to do a big book tour or what's what's going to happen? Well, the book tour, this is like really the first actual stop on it because uh, I haven't had time to investigate this yet and it kind of happened by accident. But the book is, is basically, uh, the reason I wrote uh, a book with recipes in it is because of all the people with their sort of disappointment disappearing line of reality between television and reality and so many people would come up to me at autograph shows and st- and say things like you know i've been to your restaurant and when are you going to publish your recipes and so people actually thought you're the real soup nuts yeah or or maybe we're both the same guy or if they see something on tv it's real life or whatever but my friends get have such a good time with that that they through the years kept bugging me to because i do cook and they just said why don't you write down the things you do cook and put him in a book. And so I started writing the book, but then it started becoming more stories about my acting career. You know, how I got into it, like what we talked about last week, and the whole thing with the chili and the college theater department. And so one friend of mine, my publicist, Linda Schneider, uh, uh, said, there's your book. It's where your cooking intersects with your acting career. So it, it came out to about 398 pages, 52 recipes, Eight of them are soup, as you said, or nine actually, if you include the chili. I don't think I don't consider chili yeah. a soup. It chili... really depends. Mine is very hearty. Yeah, I always think chili because it's funny because I have to watch my salt, and there's a Mrs. Dash. Uh, there's no sodium products, and mm-hmm. they have a, a powder that helps you make chili. And when I make chili, yeah, chilies. I don't want a juicy. Chi- I want chili to be hearty. I want it to be yeah. thick. You know, like I have chunks of either beef or chicken or whatever, and then ground along with it. Okay. So that it's really thick. So, but, uh, so anyway, yeah, so I wrote the book and, uh, we put it out at the beginning of the year, but I've kind of been having my busiest year in a long time. And so I've taken it to a few shows and conventions and sold it myself. But as far as bookstores and book signings, I haven't done one yet. And so, uh, Lydia Cornell was doing one there at Barnes and Noble last Thursday. So I just thought, you know, I'd go down, say hi to Lydia, ask how she got the book signing and whatever. So she and uh, uh, Herbie J. Pilato, who wrote a book on um, Elizabeth Montgomery, he was kind of the host and he's been hosting these throwback Thursday book signings. And he just flat out asked me, he goes, you want to come next Thursday night? And I said, do you know I wrote a book? And he goes, no. And I said, okay, well, that'll, that'll be doubly interesting. <laughs> and so Barnes & Noble ordered some copies, and we're going to do it. So now, now you, is it published through a publisher, or did you self-publish? Because they ordered copies. How do you yeah. do that? I, I self-published through uh, Ex Libris, who is the self-publishing side of Random House and Penguin. And uh, it's a really you know, good way to go because I make most of the money from each book. As opposed to like if Harper Collins published it and I had to sell a quarter of a million books before I get, you know, four dollars a book or something. Right. So I decided to do it this way because I I didn't assume it might be a million seller, but I figure if just a few copies get sold, at least I'll make something from it. So I broken even and now I'm just gonna see. So anyway, some uh my publicist went into a local Barnes and Noble there in Pittsburgh. And they said they'd be glad to do a signing. So I guess this is now the beginning of this accidental beginning of a signing tour. So yeah. you'll travel and you'll meet yeah. you'll meet people, and then they'll probably get, then they might even yeah. get more confused because they're soup recipes, thinking you actually are the soup. Right. Nazi. And you're like, no, I'm an actor. It's about my acting. <laughs> so we got up to the, we got up to last week where you 
finally booked the part, and your agent, who sounded like Casper the Ghost, <laughs> called and told you, Larry, you booked the part. <laughs> so now you must have been ecstatic because it was a process for you. I mean, it was was because it was a big part for you at the time, right? Yeah, it was a really big part. Uh, but on the other hand, it couldn't have been easier. It was probably the easiest, other than the nerves. I was I was frankly a little nervous to be on a show like Seinfeld, but but the the week was really easy. They were so easy to work with. They were so relaxed and sure of their jobs. You know, I, I after that I did guest on a lot of other sitcoms and TV shows, and there's always an air of people being a little jittery on their own shows because they're not a hundred percent sure that they're going to last out the season. And uh, doing a show like Seinfeld, where they knew that they had all the power in the world and they weren't going to get canceled, was sort of a, a spoiling atmosphere for me. <laughs> now, when you did it, and because we all know that, I mean, especially now through syndication, that Seinfeld shows are, I mean, you remember them. I mean, you know, all the, like, I remember, I was watching the other night, last night, and Kramer made the line, and he goes, oh, Vincent, he's a art house goon. And it's just funny. I mean, yeah. there, there's certain lines. And there are people, like I had Anthony Stark on, who was the Jimmy, you know, and people remember that. But did you think that when you did this part, that it would change your career, and it would be, I mean, because they have so many quirky characters. Did you think that this one would just resonate with people? Because this is, I mean, we talked at the uh, Max's party, besides the actual cast and like Jerry Stiller, I think this was like number one. It was in the top 10 characters of Seinfeld, right? I believe, but it was yeah. like no, it was like number one of the guests. I mean, because you know, I don't consider George's mom, I don't consider the parents guests because they were on all the time. Yeah, sort did, of But when you did, when you read this part, because it's so random, I mean, the soup <laughs> Nazi and, and no soup for you, I mean, did you did you think that it would become this popular? Did you ever fathom that you sit there and go, I I mean, you're a, you're a pop culture icon. Did you ever think that would happen when you did it or did you just think it'd be like, okay, well, they'll like it? I actually didn't go there. I mean, I didn't even, the thought didn't enter my mind whether I'd become a memorable character or not. Uh, first of all, I thought the the character that was going to steal this particular show was Yul Vasquez as the gay Cuban armoire thief. Right. I mean, he was he and John Paragon were the two armoire thieves, and they were so funny. But Yul, with this deciding to put Cuban on top of already the gay street thug, you know, just it, people were laughing so much at the table read that I thought he was going to run away with the show, and then. Shooting it, the only indication I got was the audience laughed in all the right places during my scenes, and then they do a curtain call at the end. And when I came out, there was a a bit of a, you know, bit more noise from the audience, and I knew that my mom and my sister and my wife didn't couldn't have done all that. Right. So um, it was a little tiny indications that why I did a good job, but never would my mind have gone to, wow, this will make me really popular and this will get me lots more work. I just thought at, at best it was better thing on my resume I've ever had, a better tape for my reel than I'd ever had. In fact, it was so far and above what was on my reel that I just took the six scenes out of Seinfeld and made a reel out of them and just okay. scrapped everything else because nothing else looked anywhere near that good. And then fairly quickly, I got some other guest spots and then I was able to to cut it down and have my reel was almost all TV guest spots after, after a short time, which was great. Now, when it aired that first night and you watched it, I'm sure did you, I mean, did you watch it? Is there something in the glass? I did, but it's another interesting story. My friend Camille Fielding, the late Camille Fielding, who was a, a dancer with Warner and Warner Brothers movies and married to Jerry Fielding, the uh, the um, film composer, she rented out the back room of what used to be Emilio's restaurant in Hollywood because they had a big screen TV and invited about like 15 people. And, you know, we we're all having Emilio's food and we we're going to watch the episode. And we started to. We got about halfway through the episode, and we heard this terrible crash out front of the restaurant. So we all ran out there, and it turned out that the valet guys had left Camille's Lincoln parked in front. They didn't move it anywhere, and a van full of not-legal citizens, <laughs> non-citizens, 
just barreled into it and totaled her Lincoln okay. Continental. And so, needless to say, we didn't finish watching it, <laughs> you know? So people always say, like, you know, what did you think when you first watched it? And I go, well, I saw half of it. But And then there's another thing that, that people don't understand about most actors when they watch themselves is you have to watch something about three times before you really see it. The first time, I would say the only thing that you notice is what got cut out, what's not there right. um, that you remember. The second time, you kind of come to terms with what is there and begin to either accept or not what's left. And then the third time, you can actually watch it and look at yourself and think, okay, I did okay there, or, or I could have done that better or something like that. But it, it just the first time you watch it, it's a waste of time anyway. Well, after it aired, did uh, did all of a sudden the people start recognizing you? Because mm -hmm. it, it's because the character, and it's so funny, and I, it's so funny because my niece, who now is seventeen, she, my brother used to take her to the in New York to the real soup Nazi, and he was always nice to Lauren. He was nice to her, but uh, but people, and the, and I probably built a business for that guy. The guy probably made some. Yeah, his his lines just quadrupled in length but for so, a long time. How did people react to you? I mean, did I mean how many times in that first month did people come up to you, whether you be out eating or at a bar or at the supermarket or just walking down the street and go, "No soup for you." It not was... not many times, but the the first two people that the first guy that approached me was like the next day. I was in a post office, and but what what he said was. Did you watch Seinfeld last night? You look just like the guy that played the soup Nazi. So I don't think people were expecting to see that character walk in the streets. Right. You know, it's some, I don't know why some characters maybe more than others. But the first few people that did recognize me didn't say, oh, hey, you were great as the soup Nazi or anything like that. They told me I looked like the soup Nazi. Okay. And uh, the second time was in a Costco. We were actually picking up um, photo prints. And in that set of photo prints was pictures of me by my trailer with my mom and my sister in costume. And so a couple there said to me, like, do you know, anyone ever tell you you look like that guy that the soup Nazi that was on Seinfeld? And I just like pulled out the photo and I go, you mean him? <laughs> so at first it was more like people just telling me I looked like him. And uh, and remember, I was in L.A. I the big recognition doesn't happen till I get out of town. Right. You know. Between the two coasts, I would say. So, so the show goes, and then, so then it opens up other doors for you to get other acting. Yeah, and what one of the big things that happened that weekend after Thursday night was the press just ran away with uh, finding the real Al Yegana and comparisons between hit, real life Al and me from the show. So they were showing my clip, at least one of the scenes, all weekend long on news programs. And I was really naive to television at the time. I thought maybe I get paid for that. Right. But, you know, it's like cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. And then somebody knows, no, that's newsreel. News programs are allowed to use your clips. You don't get paid. And I was like, oh, darn. But I was, so people don't realize this, but I was being seen over and over and over again all weekend. And that, that was a great boost towards recognizability for that character. Now, did, did casting directors say, okay, he's did a great job on this? Because I see after that, you know, you did the Tony Danza show, you did Sabrina, you did a bunch of stuff. Did you, did they call you in? Did they sit there and, stand did you change agents or did you the, still have the ghostly looking guy? No, the, it, it turned out that the, the, the warehouse ghost agent, um, they tried to steal the $2,610 from me. Four weeks, the, the episode aired like four weeks after we worked it, after we shot it. And, you know, SAG rules are they have within two weeks to get you your check. Well, two weeks, three weeks, I kept calling the agent's office, and they kept telling me they hadn't received the check. So then, like, the day before the episode aired, I called the Seinfeld offices, and they said, uh, well, we'll check that out for you. And then they called me back, and they said, that check cleared the bank two weeks ago. So the agents were lying to me and trying to steal the money. And so I went down there and got the check, fired the agents, so I actually, the night the episode aired, I was without representation. And uh, and these agents, not only did they try to steal from me and found, later found out that they went bankrupt owing their clientele about a quarter of a million dollars in money that they had not turned over, but not only did they try to steal from me, but they were so 
bitter about me firing them over it that they refused to give any information to anybody that called them uh, the next day. So I got a call from Mark Hirschfeld, the casting person, and he said, what's going on with you? I, you're, I called your agent's office because I'm getting tons of phone calls, and they're saying that they don't know where you are, they don't represent you anymore, and, and they refuse to give out any information. And I said, yeah, great. That's, you know, dishonest to the core. But that's, that's so, that's so <laughs> crappy. Know? And my thing is, like, I don't understand, you know, what are they thinking? But they think, okay, oh, we're just not going to pay you. I mean, the the, the ego, the so- they're sociopath just thinking, you know, oh, we're not going to pay you. And yeah. it's like, it's, and like it's you- your money. It's in your social security number. Right. But the DA, this has happened maybe four times since then to either myself, a really close friend, my ex-wife had happened to. And the DA in L in Los Angeles won't do a thing about it because they they consider it low grade white collar crime, and they they go it's actually a civil contract that says that they get ten percent and have to turn the other ninety over to you. The fact that you're authorizing that they receive the check can be argued in a legal sense that you're giving them all the money. Now it's stupid because no, you're working for this money and it's yours. You're not. You're just allowing them to receive your check. So through the years, it's so unfortunate. And when I get a new agent, I have to say, like, you know, I'm not accusing you, but I do not let agents receive my checks anymore. Because in the eyes of the law, that is me giving you the money. Right. So if you take it, the law won't go after you. So I just said, you're going to just have to trust me to give you the 10%, you know. So, so that was, yeah, that was, they were pretty scummy. And like I said, they ended up going bankrupt and owing much more than that to a lot of actors. So, uh, but so the next day I find myself without an agent and, uh, a fairly important TV appearance. And so I immediately went to this place we used to always go to in, in Van Nuys called Anderson Graphics. And I just put a rush order on 375 postcards that said something like, I think I have the, a picture of it in my book, but it said something like, did you watch Seinfeld this week? Well, um, I was the soup Nazi and I'm seeking representation. And so the the next day, my mom and I sat there and we stamped 375 postcards and we, I had the, the packet of casting director mailing labels and that was that's where that guy recognized me. I went to the post office to drop them all off. That's funny. So uh, so yeah, that was a really interesting week after that because uh, I don't know how many people might have been looking for me that never did find me because they just called that agent and and the agent said we don't know where he is. Whatever disgusting scummy thing that they did. What's really awful is I don't want to mention any names, but that guy is still agenting around town. See, yeah. that's, that's, that's sad. It's awful. But, um, but anyway, so, so, uh, my next audition was for Ellen, the sitcom Ellen. And, uh, it was the first of a series of Russian characters I was to lose to Ilya Baskin, who's a marvelous Russian actor. And, uh, every time I see him in a room, I just go cringe. Right. <laughs> you know, no. <laughs> But uh, it was so, uh, and I think my my first job was on the Kirk Cameron show okay, after now, Seinfeld. Now, was the Kirk Cameron show, was that on regular, I guess it, there, was, there was just regular TV. It was the WB okay. at the time, which was Channel 5, I think, was being called the WB. Now, now did did you get like a religious vibe when you walked in? Because, I mean, you see things He was now. very quiet. Okay. He, was, he, was, he, was, <laughs> he was pleasant and, you know, cordial. But quiet, like he wasn't a big, funny, rabble-rousing, crazy guy. So I could kind of see that he was a very staid young man. But but everyone was nice. That I remember the casting person that brought me in for it said, "Well, thank you so much for coming in. This I'm I'm you know we're, we can't offer you the soup Nazi or anything like it, but it's just the Kirk Cameron show." And I went, "It's a job, you know. It's okay." So and that was the first time. I had to get used to shooting three scenes and only seeing one of them on the show. So that was the beginning of me real, because Seinfeld was so good to me. Right. Not only did they keep all of my scenes in, almost all the scenes were 
intact of what we shot and worked on, you know. And Jerry did me the added favor of preferring my my reactions to things rather than the rule of thumb, which was always go back to the series regulars for reactions. So I got spoiled my first big guest spot. And then, yeah, the Kirk Cameron show taught me what it was like to tell everyone you know you're on TV and and that you have three scenes and then you tune in and suddenly the end credits come and you go, wait, there was only one scene. Right. <laughs> you know. Of course, I got used to that fast. No, no, you also were in the Carolina in the City, and you were mm-hmm. in Marlis. Grace Under Fire. Now, Austin yeah. Powers. Now, mm-hmm. now, was that your first big-budget movie? That was my first big-budget movie, but remember, it wasn't really a big-budget movie. Yeah. The second two were big-budget movies, but the first Austin Powers was actually kind of a low-budget deal because Mike Myers wasn't actually proven as a scriptwriter. Right. You know, and Jay Roach, that was his first feature. And that's funny because so he's was, so many great movies. Yeah. Oh, he's like the king of movies now. But yeah, that, that was his first feature. It was Mike Myers' first screenplay. Um, and uh, so it was kind of a low-budget deal. And I almost got Robert Wagner's role. That was the deal. My manager was working feverishly. She read the breakdown, and she just thought that was so perfect for me. And they were casting for it because technically Mike wrote it for Robert Wagner. He admitted that later. But getting Robert Wagner was another story because at that time, I think Robert Wagner was maybe semi-retired. Right. You know, he wasn't that active. And and certainly the pay, the favored nation's pay that I know I got was not what he was used to getting. So... Up till their casting deadline, which was one day at 5 p.m., my manager kept saying, I think you're going to get this one. I think you're going to get this one. And then she called me one day and she goes, take your reel, your your VHS videotape, and drive it to this address. They're going to make a decision by 5 p.m. And it was like on the way there, she paged me. And I called her from a payphone. And she said uh, they went with the celebrity that, that they originally wanted, but they do want you to do a cameo in it, so they're going to send a script over. So it was that evening I really got a treat. I got to sit there and read the script to Austin Powers before the movie ever got made and because uh, they wanted me to look at the part of the blackjack dealer. And uh, it was hilarious. I mean, my, my wife was sitting next to me watching TV, and I was sitting on the bed reading, and I kept laughing out loud, LOL. And she kept saying, what? What is it? I'm going, you just have to read this after me. It's so funny. What's funny about that movie was when it came out, I was I just moved up here and I was waiting tables at Planet Hollywood in Beverly Hills and they had a screening room. Well, the night before it came out, they got a copy and they let the staff watch it. And we were all just dying. I mean, yeah. we sitting there like it was and it was great because there was, as I said, there was like 18 of us in the little screening room drinking beers and just hanging out and it, it was just so different and so funny that you didn't you know yeah you might think it was gonna be when you saw the preview or you heard about it, you think yeah this might be stupid but it was just funny. yeah and it read the script read funny i mean jay roach did such a great job of of getting all the jokes that mike wrote and and bringing them to life so they worked just like they did in the script but it was it was great um when Robert Wagner's character, well, I didn't know it was, you know what? I didn't know it was Robert Wagner until I saw him. For some reason, they weren't allowed, or my manager wasn't allowed to tell me, or they wouldn't tell her who exactly the celebrity was. So I actually read the script, and when you get to that scene, my scene, the blackjack scene, uh, he says for the first time the name of the Italian confidential secretary. And I remember reading it and going like, whoa! And my wife goes, what? What is it? And I said, I said, sweetie, I can't even say it out loud. And I like handed her the script. And I just go read that. And uh, and she goes, oh, wow. And I said, the script has not been that crass. And I said, but I got to find out who this actor is. Because unless they resurrected David Niven, right. I can't imagine who has the class to just deliver that and not have it just go like, oh, <laughs> you know. And uh so I do remember showing up in the makeup trailer and there was Robert Wagner sitting there, you know, getting worked on. And I went, aha, right. good, good. <laughs> Robert Wagner. I hadn't, didn't have him in my mind, you know, but when I saw him, I went, oh, he can get away with it. 
Now, when you're acting and you're getting these parts, and then I know, did you know Seinfeld, when they did the finale, they were going to bring you back? Did you have any No, idea? no. And in fact, the worst thing was happening with Seinfeld, except for with the Emmy nomination, and they did send me a stretch limo for the what was uh, that technical like? awards. I mean... It, it was just... God, I, I can't really explain it, because my life was never like that, and it's not actually been much like that since, but... It was about a two or three month period of just feeling like you you stepped into the glass slipper, so to speak, and suddenly you're living this charmed life as a prince. It was just unlike anything I was. I never won a scratcher at McDonald's, anything. And suddenly I find myself nominated for an Emmy with these four illustrious names and and the press was treating me really nicely it was just such a dream world it was just amazing Did you get a good gift back and uh i i don't even remember you know i don't rem the only thing i remember about that night was the fact that they were going to give my award away sort of right smack in the middle of the evening in the program that's where it was but more of the guest actresses in a in a comedy showed up than the guest actors Tim Conway was working on the film Dear God. Mandy Patinkin, um, I think he was on tour or something. He didn't show up. Griffin Dunn didn't show up. So only two of us showed up. And uh, so they, there was more of the women there. So they switched, and they got their award in the middle of the night, and my award got held till the second-to-last second award of the evening. So all I remember about the evening is just sweating and, you know, my wife telling me how pale I looked for all these hours. It was just long. You know, it's the technical awards right. for that award. And it was just a long, long night. But the upshot was, um, I, I can say this because I love the man dearly as the rest of uh, entertainment history does. I was never so unhappy to hear the name Tim Conway. Or I should say, it's the first time I ever heard the name Tim Conway and not smiled right. <laughs> when he beat me for that award. But then, you know, uh, 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 God, I'm blanking. Peter Boyle won the dramatic side of that award for an episode of X-Files that he did. And he was so, we had a dinner afterwards, and for the rest of the night, he was just telling me how great my performance was and put his Emmy in the middle of the table. And he was just such a gentleman. And, and so it was still, a, it was, still magical right up until getting in the car to drive home at which point i started laughing to myself and my wife said what what is it and i said i just got the craziest thought and she said what and i said i just feel like a voice is ringing in my head and saying your 15 minutes are up sir please deposit another 20 years and try that career again you know because i just felt like that that was the end of everything i went i didn't win and um I thought maybe if I had won, uh, it might have opened some doors. And, and also, if I had won, the next night was the primetime awards on television, I would have been a presenter because the winner okay. of my category would have presented an award, such as did Peter Boyle and Tim Conway the next night. So suddenly I would have been on TV on the primetime awards. And uh, I'm sure that would have meant some kind of cash in the business. I'm right. Not sure what, because it didn't happen. But good things still happened. You know, uh, I still was able to then say I was a Emmy nominee, and and um, a lot of people would talk about it when I'd go on auditions and so forth. So I think even even that did some good. But uh, but um, it was great. Austin Powers. The other. Thing I just want before we get off the subject of it, I do want to say is that was the first time I was ever offered work in my life that I didn't have to read for. Okay. And you have no idea. Actors hate auditioning in various degrees. <laughs> I'm up at the top of that list. I just, it's just always been painful for me. Whether I do a great job and get the part or not, it, I, I go in with dread. <laughs> I do go in with dread. And that was so cool to be in something of that nature, to work with 
you know, Robert Wagner and Mike Myers and, and the people, Elizabeth Hurley, and not have had to read for it. And, you know, have a director like Jay Roach was to become come up to me and just go like, so um, it's kind of open. What do you want to do with the character? <laughs> because you want it to be like your Seinfeld character? I said, no, I wouldn't want to do that on purpose. But there was a line that did get cut out. I mean, we did get to film it. And I got to loop it about 30 times, but it did get cut out of the final cut where he's got his x-ray eye patch and he sees that the next card is a four and he's got 17. And originally I say, you have 17, sir. The book says not to. And Jay Roach and I both loved that line equally and played with it so many. We played with it as if I that number two and I knew each other right. as if we had some kind of thing together. We did it as if my character just literally reads the book of blackjack every day, like a Bible, you know, and he knows exactly what's in the book. We just had so much fun with that line. And then every line in that scene had, had to be looped because of the casino noise. So we all separately went into a sound studio on La Cienega and looped it all. And when we did that, Jay and I still played with it more. He had me say it so many different ways. And then at the screening, he comes up to me and he put his arm around me. And he goes, I just want to tell you something before you see the movie. And I said, what? And he goes, I had to cut our favorite line. And I went, the book says not to. And he goes, yeah. I went, why? And he goes, it's just upon cutting the movie, I knew I needed a straight man in that scene because everybody else was kind of comical. And he said, so that was, that was the one outlandish line I had to cut out. And I said, okay, well, thanks for warning me. <laughs> you know? well, yeah, at least you knew, so it's <laughs> yeah. good. So now then, then the finale of Seinfeld, they call you. Did, when did they call you and tell you, hey, you're going to be on it? Because no one knew. Everyone was like, what's this finale going to be? What is it going to be? What is it going to be? You know, And it's a thing. It's like, so did you have any idea? Well, first you... of all, I have to preface that with I would never have expected to be called because right after the episode became really popular, Spike Ferriston, who was the writer of it, also nominated for an Emmy for his first solo Emmy. He had been nominated with the Letterman writers as a group before. But so he used to call me all the time and go like, boy, we're both nominated for an Emmy for this. You know, how cool is that? He was really like excited about having written a breakaway character and stuff. So he would tell me that he wanted to write more soup Nazi, but they just wouldn't let him. And uh, then I had my own agenda and Spike was not used to an actor's ego. So when I came back at him with, why, didn't they like me? And he'd go like, are you drinking, Larry? What, right. what, does, that, what does that matter? And I'd go, well, they don't want you to write another one. He goes, no, they don't. It's got nothing to do with you. And I went, are you sure? And he goes, I'm not even going to go there with you. <laughs> you know, he was just, he was not even going to entertain this new thing that was hitting him. And so he never really told me what the exact reason was. He just kept saying, like, we're both in the same boat. They won't let me write another episode. So I was the last one to think they'd ever want to see me again. You know, after the, the rap party for season seven, I thought, I'll never see these people again. And so it was two and a half, I'd say, years later. I was uh, doing my bail bond job. I was in Glendale Court. I'll never forget this because I made the loudest noise and all the court clerks were staring at me. But my uh, pager went off, and th by this time I had a cell phone. So I was doing research inside the courtroom, but I called my manager and I said, yeah. And she goes, uh, I just got a call from Mark Hirschfeld's office. Do you want to be a part of the Seinfeld finale? And I went, what? Really? Oh, my God. And all the court clerks are staring at me and going, oh, nothing, just a personal thing, you guys. But the big mistake happened right then and there. She hung up the phone from me and then went to call Mark's office back. And in between those split seconds, Entertainment Weekly called her and said, we're just wondering if we can get confirmation if Larry Thomas is going to be in the Seinfeld finale. And she said, yes, not knowing that we weren't supposed to say anything. And then so she called Mark's office to say, yeah, Larry is available. And that's when they told her, um, you'll be sworn to secrecy and nobody's going to say anything. And she just went, uh-oh. Right, right. <laughs> so I think I think nobody ever said a word to me, but I did have to go on that set and sit there with all the other guest actors and listen to Larry David give his heartfelt, especially for Larry David, 
impassioned speech about how his dream is that nothing leaks out and that the public and the press don't get to know anything about what it's going to be about. And I just sat there going like, does he know that Entertainment Weekly has already printed that I'm going to, that the Soup Nazi is going to be in it? I thought they were going to fire me just, you know, over that. But they, they, did, they didn't sign it. We did have to sign a big agreement. And the agreement actually said we weren't going to tell our spouses where we were going each day. And I just said, yeah, whoever drew this one up is not married. Right. And that's, that ain't going to fly, <laughs> you know. But, but it was a, an incredible experience. I got to meet so many wonderful actors that are still friends now. Uh, I think the most exciting moment had to be when Jerry Stiller and I well, we got into a, a conversation because I broke the ice by saying we both named our son Ben. And then we just started talking, and I was talking about the taking of Pelham 123, and then he told me this wonderful story about how at the very last minute of shooting, Walter Matthau made them switch dialogue. <laughs> you say my lines and I'll say your lines kind of thing. And uh, it was a great story, but Jerry Stiller was really cool, and just so many people that... that uh, I had been a fan of because I was a fan of the show. All those other guest actors that I got to talk to and, and everything. So it was uh, just a fun, fun, fun time. And and my ability or my, my non-reluctance to say No Soup for You came from that. Had I not done the finale to this day, I probably would not have said No Soup for You 30,000 times or once even. Because up till we worked on the finale, I had actually refused to say it. When I was nominated for the Emmy and I got interviewed by Inside Edition and Entertainment Tonight and stuff, they were asking me to say it. And I was, gonna, I was saying, I'd rather not. You know, my big thing was I was embarrassed that it would just come out totally differently and it would come out out of context and just wouldn't be looked at or heard as it was when Jason Alexander was standing across the counter or Julie Louis-Dreyfus. Right. And so I just did, I didn't think it would scan, you know, so I didn't say it. So that had been about two and a half years. And the first thing we did shoot was that silent bit when uh, the jury was out and they were kind of showing what everyone was doing in this New England town. And, of course, the soup Nazi was serving soup at a bed and breakfast to a few of the other characters. And when Poppy motions like salt and pepper the soup nazi takes away his bowl well there wasn't any dialogue there so the first take i just took his bowl away and then we were asked to wait and larry and jerry were leaning in and whispering to each other as they they were want to do and it would always make everybody nervous especially me i when they were whispering and looking over at me i thought for sure it's like okay i i don't have it anymore they're gonna call shaloub they're gonna fire me and call shaloub you know but uh, they called me over, and Jerry goes, yeah, we think you need to say it out loud. And he, he'll never have any idea. You know, I smiled, but it was filled with dread and fear. And I went back, and we did another take. And I just, for the first time in two and a half years, I took the soup away from Poppy and went, no soup for you. And everybody laughed. And that was that. And they kept it, you know. And we started walking away, and Larry David, like, intentionally crossed the street and walked next to me and said, that's amazing, man. You say it the same exact way you said it three years ago. And that's all I needed to hear. So it's really because of that and because of Larry David that I've now said it, you know, thousands of times. Well, after the show went off the air, it went into syndication. Or did it go into syndication during the show? It was already in syndication. But now, when that went into syndication, because we all know how much syndication, mm. I mean, you can find Seinfeld, like TBS, yeah. TNT. It, I don't Coast think TV. it was like this. I think one, I think it was on one channel, like in each town. Now, did that start getting you more recognition for that character? Because, I mean, I know you started doing a lot of conventions, but I mean, yeah. what is that transition? Because it is a pop culture uh, character. And then with as YouTube got bigger, as the internet got, I mean, mm -hmm. if, if, if it had come out, this character had come out now with the way the internet is, it would have just blown up right away. Maybe. I, I still think it was all that coverage of like me and Al Yegana that weekend so that people were seeing my face again and again and again and again. Because I don't think there was like really YouTube and all that stuff. Right. So 
So usually, you know, you'd see that. Then you wouldn't get to see that guy's face again for maybe two or three months in prime time when they when they played the first rerun. But people were seeing my face again and again and again all weekend. So you can't argue with how much that did. And then uh, it dropped into syndication maybe the next season. Um, so uh, like it's first the Soup Nazis first prime time rerun. It aired originally in November, that, and then that was in February during sweeps, I think. And supposedly their numbers were like 32 million or something. And I think they beat ER that night. Like it was the first night they had actually beaten ER, the first primetime rerun. So people must have liked it enough to watch it again. Uh, but it was slow going. It was very slow going because there wasn't, all this ability of people to see me again and again. You know, now sometimes I go to an autograph show and I either hear, God, it was just on last week before you got here on TV, or a lot of people would come up with their kids and go, we just showed it to our kids on YouTube before we came. So now people have the ability to watch it over and over. And now the Hulu thing, forget it. Right. Kids are going to be walking down the street with their iPhones watching it as as they're you know waiting at traffic signals. So. Now now the shows. Well, you also you did some commercials with it. Yeah, I have gotten to. That's that's the one area where I've gotten to sort of rehash the character is commercially. And now didn't you go to a Mets game? Did you go to? A... I did a Mets game, a White Sox game. So what is that like? Do they just? I mean, what do you do? You throw a pitch out, or you go sing? Or what? I do the pitch. So you actually throw. No a... one has had. Here's the funny part: is no one's ha- asked me to sing the seventh inning stretch in any of these games. And I once did a Cubs game where it was my very first pitch, and I blew it. I overthrew the pitch. What's that like? And when you sit there, because a guy I know, Tim Lenahan's a head coach of soccer for Northwestern. He did it at a Cubs game. And I know, well, a guy I knew from high school just sang at a Phillies game, sang the seventh inning stretch. But it must be nerve-wracking throwing the first pitch because everyone, everyone wants to see you do bad. No one wants to sit, like, like, unless you're an old lady, then it's okay. But if you're a celebrity, they want to see you screw it up because then they're well, like, ah. As I always tell the uh, the uh, team managers and the team coach, because they always like say, you're okay for this. I always say, just remember something. I'm an actor. And most people are actors because they couldn't play baseball. Okay, just remember that. Right. You went into the theater, the drama department, because you weren't good at baseball. So, but actually, I have to say, in my last, I'd say, five games that I've thrown a pitch, maybe four games I've thrown the pitch out, I have gotten it into the catcher's hand. I have mastered my own little trick. It's terrible form. It's like an overhand lob, but some reason... It manages to get there, and to me, that's the important thing, is because the Cubs booed me mercilessly when I overthrew it. But then they had a retired pitcher sing the seventh inning stretch, and he was totally off key and off time through the whole thing, and going like wrong guys doing the wrong jobs. Because right. I can sing, I've trained for it for ten years, you know, I've done musicals, but no one's ever asked me to do that. But because of minor league baseball. I have probably thrown that pitch out now about good 10 times. So they call you, you and know? they go, hey, we want you to throw the pitch out. Now, do they say, is there like a, a, a promotion that night? Do they yeah, get soup out? It's or? usually a Seinfeld night. And they'll do everything from cut, no soup for you contest and Elaine Little Kicks Bad Dancing contests. And sometimes they'll get a bunch of soup ladles for me to sign for them. Uh, most of the time I say to them, I said, you can have permission to use the photograph that i own just put your team logo on it for for the night and so they'll maybe make 100 or 200 pictures with their team logo on it and i'll sit and sign those because they pay me to be there so anything i do while i'm there is for them you know so those those nights are really fun though i i love the baseball games aside from the first pitch but like i said the last like four times you know pitching is like to me for an actor is like doing a close-up if if you blow it, everybody has to go back to work and whatever. But if you ace that close up and the director doesn't even want to do it again, then people will keep talking about it for the rest of the day because we all everyone got done early. Right. And the pitch is the same kind of thing. If if you do get it into the catcher's hand, you'll hear it for the rest of the night. You know. Now, when you, as I said, when you did this character, did you ever think it would end up being? for these shows because now shows contact you right now i mean how mm-hmm. many shows so what basically they sit there and they go 
okay, we want Larry Thomas. That we're going to sit there and we're going to sit him and we're going to we're going to. Do they contact your agent or how does it happen? And, and they, they you... used to contact my agent, um, but it is is just gotten to the point where they uh, my website's gotten high enough on on the Google search to where I think it's on the first page. So lately they've just been contacting me, and uh, it's 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 pretty easy to negotiate. You know, I, I if they don't have if they aren't filled with their own ideas, I just say this is how it's going to go. This is you know, photo ops. It's always photo ops. Once I put on the chef's coat, everybody wants to take a picture. So, you know, work that in. It used to be that everyone didn't have their own sophisticated cell phone camera. So I'd say to them, get a camera. But now they don't even have to do that because everybody's got a really good cell phone camera. Now, how many have you done? I mean, uh, I mean, when you think about it, just offhand. Like I said, probably about 10 baseball games. But then the conventions. And, oh, conventions... Many. You know, I, I don't do quite as many as I used to because I'm not chasing them down as much. Uh, but I used to do like one a month, so I might do 10 or 12 a year. So you fly out, and then they, you stay stay at a hotel mm-hmm. in this town, and people just come out, and there's a bunch of different actors, and then they just walk around. Yeah, and I've made some really good friends that way, too. I mean, you're going to sit next to Ernie Hudson for three days. You're going to become friendly, exchange acting stories. So it was like I, I went to a play, I got invited to a play at the Mark Taper Forum a few months ago, a friend of mine who's a casting uh, director and producer, and she had also invited Ernie. And um, Ernie lives much farther away than we do, so uh, we were waiting out front for him, and she goes, God, I wish I hadn't forgotten my cell phone. I can't call him. And I thought, wait a minute. And I looked in my contacts, and I go, I have Ernie Hudson in here. <laughs> But you know, it's not that we're that close. But you you make a friend at a casting at a autograph show. You exchange phone numbers, and it's been such an interesting forum to learn about your fellow actors and and talk to them about you know your career and stuff. So I think that's been the single most fun part of it. Now you told me actually we talked briefly at Max's party about it that a lot of young filmmakers and independent filmmakers are contacting you now. Mm-hmm. Now. Are they? What kind of characters are they contacting you for? Do they sit there and and they watch you and they probably go through IMDb, which is a lot of credits, and then they sit there and then they probably sit there. I mean, do they know? Do they sit there and contact you and say, "Hey, listen, here's a role," because I'm sure you don't have to read for them. No, that that's the that's been the great thing about this part of my career. There's only one of of my indie films that I've done. Uh, well, two counting Postal, but being that I don't recommend. Postal to anyone, I don't care. But my one favorite indie film called Redemption for Robbing the Dead, the Western, I did have to read for it only because of the direct, the casting person who's my friend that I was just talking about, Katrine McGregor, told him, she goes, Larry Thomas would be great for this. And he just couldn't see it because he'd only seen me as the soup Nazi. And this guy was a, it was a Western guy. He was a wagon. He was the guy that drove the wagon, the supply wagon. And, uh, he didn't see me in that rural setting, so I did have to read for him, but I got the part, and that's kind of one of my favorites anyway. But most of the rest of them, yeah, they contact me and they say, I, I, I've got a part for you. I'd love you to play, you know, if you'd read the script and tell me what your details are and whatever. So uh, most of it's been that, and most of the parts are so varied. Like, believe it or not, these guys are not writing soup Nazi-like parts for me to play. They're actually writing offbeat, crazy characters, but they they know enough about acting to know that, well, if you could play the soup Nazi, you could play anything else. And they, like you said, they do look at IMDb, and they have seen that I've done a lot of different stuff. So uh, that's that's been a source of fun for me for a few years now, that although I'm still auditioning for TV and hoping to book some TV guest spots because the union, medical insurance pension point the the kind of things that people don't realize you know 20 years ago if you said like you know what what are you looking forward to as an actor i might have said a remake of casablanca so i right. could play rick and now i say health care and pension points <laughs> that's all i'm concerned with now but it it uh, has come to that but the but these indie films are fun like the last one i did i'm actually going to chicago for the premiere on september 19th it's a romantic comedy called Mind Over Mindy, and I play a schizophrenic psychiatrist 
that I actually got to help write because the, I had done one other film for this director. He's a Chicago guy named Robert Alanese. We did a film called You Don't Say. And when he was writing this film, he would talk to me about it and he'd go, I've got this idea for a psychiatrist that I'd love you to play because I'm not sure what I want him to be or how I want him to be, but just the idea, the comedic idea is just a psychiatrist that should not be a psychiatrist. And so we kicked it around different things, you know, that maybe he's just more neurotic than any patient could ever be on a kind of a lighter level than on a more crazy kooky level. You know, I said, what if he's totally schizophrenic? And the guy goes, you mean like he has two different characters during the session? And I said, yeah. And then he came up with the idea that the lead guy in the movie that's going to him never catches him. Okay. Like he's always looking away when the different voice comes out. He always like, you know, looks back real quickly. And by then the guy's already like back to his other personality. So that was a ball. So the, the parts are like that. They're just bizarre and different. TV usually had me close to the vest. A lot of foreign characters with accents. Uh, comedically, I got to stretch out a little more, believe it or not. I got to play some some fun parts. Uh, the, Tony Danza had a show called The Tony Danza Show. Not his talk show, but his last sitcom. That was one of my favorite parts, although at the beginning I had very little dialogue, but it was basically an upscale guy on a subway with a bunch of other people, Tony and his daughter, on Thanksgiving night, and there's a blackout, so they're stuck. And Tony has a turkey, and I have a plate of Thanksgiving everything else, you know, stuffing and potatoes and whatever, but it's like under my coat. And there was this really funny thing where we get up and... You know, like I flash him the food and he flashes me the turkey. And then we get up and we secretly try to exchange. You know, I get a piece of turkey. He gets right. some potatoes. And then uh, we get caught. And it was just really funny. And uh, people don't know this about Tony Danza, but he's he really is a guy of the street. He's so generous to another guy, you know, that he insisted I get more dialogue. So I took the part mostly because it was a physical comedy thing and then i ended up getting a few really funny lines written for me during the week so uh that was one of my favorite tv guest spots that was a little different than the other stuff and uh i didn't have to have an accent you know but uh and he was great to work with and that's that was the greatest thing about post seinfeld television was boom i got to work with amy peets on caroline in the city i got to work with Gina Davis on the Gina Davis show. I get to work with Tony Danza on the Tony Danza show. Uh, Brett Butler on Julie White on Grace Under Fire. Suddenly I'm thrown into these scenes. None of the guest spots I got were as big as the Soup Nazi, but I got these really nice little guest spots, and I always somehow ended up with the stars of the show, which was great for my reel. Because people do look at your reel, and they look at your reel to see who you're with. Not so much to look at your acting. It's like, oh, he's with Tony Danza. Oh, he's right. with Gina Davis. Oh, wow, high class. You know, that kind of thing. And so it immediately made my reel look good. So TV has been, uh, those guest spots have been a lot of fun. I, I just told somebody the other day that they said, do you, would you still want to do a series? And I said, oh, my, my, my goal for the way I die is to die on a series. So it's, it's still there. I mean, Nicholas Colasanto, Dolph Sweet, you know, it may have been sad that they finally got a hit series and they passed away, but I want to go the same way. Right, right. I want to get a hit series and work it till I just pass away. Now, do you do you, do you enjoy like some of these uh, indie movies? Are they dra some of them are dramas? Yeah, do you, yeah. Do you I'll... enjoy that or do you want to do more comedy? No, I, I uh, they're they're a little of both. Actually, more of them are horror comedies than anything else because a lot of these young indie filmmakers, they know that that the money, if they're going to make uh, something from their movie, it's a horror comedy is like your best is your best venue, horror or horror comedy. And so a few of them, there's a guy named uh, John Wesley Norton who makes movies in Chicago. I've done like four or five movies with him. Uh, not another B movie. One's getting released very soon um, called Dr. Spine on DVD, 
which is a, a killer chiropractor, and I play his psychiatrist. <laughs> I guess I've played a couple of psychiatrists, but um, another one called Paranormal Calamity, which was a spoof on paranormal activity, and I play this total phony baloney con man paranormal expert that comes into the house and just double talks and and so forth. And uh, so I, I've done a, a, a one called Spades, which actually was john's like one serious movie about uh a kidnapping a serial killer's family and so forth and and uh i don't want to say who i play in case you ever see spades because it's a really nicely done movie and worth sitting through but uh um that was very dramatic kind of a crime drama thing so and then i did another crime drama called three of a kind which won a couple of big awards so it's out there so, so some of them are dramas, but some of them are comedies, um, and uh, I love doing both. I don't actually have a preference. I have a knack for comedy, which, which I'm thank God for. It was my one gift. Even when people t- were telling me that I was really bad at acting, somehow I could still take a comedic role in a play and still get the laughs out of it. So. Growing up watching W.C. Fields and the Stooges and the road pictures and stuff, somehow I developed a knack for what makes a character comedic. And with me, just the big secret is it's not timing, it's a sense of irony. You know, people always like to say timing, and I always go, I have no idea what timing is. Right. And I would never actually try to use timing. I just attack everything with a sense of irony. There's got to be something ironic about every person. And then I just try to find it and exploit it. But uh, I love doing drama, too, because that's what I trained to do. That's what all those 35 years of acting classes were spent trying to make dramatic situations work and be real, not be predictable. Uh, that's what I had trouble with, being really being alive in the moment in a dramatic situation and 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 not making it predictable, making it surprising and and, you know, some actors are just so gifted with that, uh, you know, like Leonardo DiCaprio. Right. They're just they're just young and gifted and they do that. So I had to had to learn it through many years of of different acting theory and technique. All right. So. Well, we have to wrap, wrap up soon. Do you have any other do you have any shows coming up besides the book signing? Are you doing any of those uh, autograph uh, shows or um, Hollywood shows? Or? There will be. Uh. Well, for anybody in Maryland, my next very next thing is Frederick Keys Baseball in Maryland on August 15th. I'll be appearing that night for their minor league team game. And then September 19th in Chicago, the premiere of Mind Over Mindy. I'm not 100% sure of which theater yet, but you could check my website and my Facebook site and uh, my Twitter and then in October, I'm doing the Hamilton Comic-Con in Canada. And then in November, I'm doing for the second time the Rhode Island Comic-Con in Providence, Rhode Island, which is a really big, big turnout show. And it's a great show. And then in December, I'm doing for the umpteenth time, although I love it, the Steel City Con in Pittsburgh. So I have, yeah, I have more coming up in the fall. And the website is realsoupnazi.com? Yes. And then this Thursday, he'll be at Barnes & Noble. What time is that at? That's at it's 7 to 9 p.m. Okay. There's actually four of us, and they're saving me for last, I think, so don't worry about being late right. <laughs> on my account. Well, I want to thank you for coming back on. And people, go check them out. Uh, go check out, uh, if you're in Burbank, go check out the, the book signing. And you can learn how to make some soup. Well, you know, you can't, be, you can't bitch about that. Soup is good. Very underrated. People always pick soup, salad over soup. But a good soup is a good soup. But if you make them in your crock pot, they can be very low sodium, but we'll talk about it another time. So follow him, people. Uh, go to his website. Check out what's going on with Larry's career. Follow me at Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. Also go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 400 episodes up there. You can email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Or you can also go to uh, iTunes or Stitcher and type in one word, Cooper Talk. Find my episodes there. Google Play. I have an app. It's free. All my episodes go there. And also go to stopthesalt.com. That's stopthesalt.com. It's my low-sodium cooking book. Uh, It's for cooking for one. Very easy. No pictures. You won't get intimidated. The recipes are easy. Not a ton of ingredients. If you don't have cumin, you don't need cumin. It's basic recipes. It's healthy because you're not getting any younger and you have to eat healthier. 
So go to StopTheSalt.com. You can buy it at uh, Amazon online, but buy it from me because I make more money, and I'll sign it for you. So do that. Check out TheRealSoupNazi.com, and I'll talk to you guys next week. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will see you next week. Well, you'll hear me next week.